Welcome back, Stew Heads, to another episode of Remnant Stew. I'm your host, Leah. And I'm Steve. And what are we talking about today, Steve? Today, we're talking about all the great and amazing escapes. If you have an appetite for intriguing and bizarre true stories, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for a curious helping of Remnant Stew. Everyone loves an exciting escape story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep you on the edge of your seat. Countless movies are enhanced by scenes of daring escapes. I can remember as a little kid seeing The Sound of Music and that very exciting scene at the end when the Von Trapp family is hiding in the uh, convent and uh, trying to make their escape from the, uh, from the Nazis over the Austrian Alps to try to reach safety in Switzerland. Uh, we could talk all day about... Exciting escape stories, not exhaust the supply. Many, many escape stories, but we're going to limit to just a few today. The first one comes to us from the animal kingdom. I love this story. Okay, so for our first escape today, uh, we have Emily. Emily was a cow. Well, what a great name for a cow. And and, and we, we hear how she got her name. In November of 1995, she, along with a few members of her, a few other members of her herd, mm-hmm. was offloaded from a trailer and led into a Massachusetts slaughterhouse. Not a good start to your day. No, and I think she kind of knew something was up. So when noon came around, Emily was next in line for the kill floor. But that's when the workers decide to br- decided to break for lunch giving Emily a short reprieve. So she must have known that this was not the place she wanted to stay at because she managed to take fate into her own hands. Uh-huh. Or Our hooves. hooves, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, le- and heave all of her 1,600-pound bulk over the five-foot-high gate in one jump. Then she bolted for freedom. That's quite a jump for a cow. Some of the workers saw her escape and gave chase, but she proved that besides being a crackerjack high jumper, she was also a talented sprinter. The slaughterhouse lost about $500 in hamburger meat that day that Emily got away. Her struggle didn't end there, however. She had to find a way to survive the New England winter and find the 40 pounds of food a day necessary to keep a cow of her size alive. That would be hard in the winter. All while dodging the local police, who after several unsuccessful attempts to corral Emily, had been instructed to shoot her on sight. No, not with a pistol. She found her way into the hearts of local residents, though, who put out hay for her. That was nice. One local family. <laughs> yes, that's right. They, th- These local residents really stepped up. And one particular family, the Randas, took it a little bit further. They didn't want to just help Emily to survive. They wanted to save her. So they convinced the slaughterhouse. They actually went and visited the slaughterhouse uh-huh. and convinced them to sell her to them for a dollar. That's a good deal. <laughs> they just wanted to be done with it, Meg Randa said. They're still out for yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. They, yeah, the slaughterhouse really got, got you know. That they explains lost the money. price of That's meat right. going up a little bit, but all right, go ahead. <laughs> so, and with that, the suburban family now owned a free-range cow. <laughs> the Randas gave Emily her name and spent days feeding her hay and winning her trust and eventually coaxing her into a cattle trailer. She was brought to Peace Abbey, a place where she could live out her days freely without worrying about becoming someone's meal. Mm -hmm. But as the article in Atlas Obscura says, Emily wasn't just free, she was famous. Yeah, a local celebrity. After she was recaptured, her legend only grew. She got written up in People magazine and Parade magazine. 
She was a bridesmaid at two <laughs> weddings. <laughs> she ate the bouquet in one of the mixes. Uh-huh. Yeah. She served as the spokescow for several animal rights organizations. So Emily passed away in 2003 of bovine leukemia, but is remembered by a life-size statue of her that now stands in the town of Sheborn, Massachusetts. It was commissioned by the Peace Abbey to bring awareness to animal rights and to commemorate a cow who dared to take a leap. Good for Emily. (laughs) Good for Emily. She escaped slaughter. (laughs) Well, continuing on the theme of amazing escapes, though, have you ever heard of anybody escaping execution? Uh, You know, a couple, but this story is just unreal. This this comes to us from the year 1915, the Mexican Revolution, and a gentleman by the name of Winslow Miguel. He survived being uh, shot by firing squad. He was shot 10 times, in fact. Wow. The story of survival is so incredible that even caught the eye of Robert Ripley himself, the famous Robert Ripley of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Branded as a traitor, Wenceslao was sentenced without trial to execution. Now, during the Mexican Revolution, a firing squad was the preferred means of execution. The squad was comprised of nine soldiers who would all fire their weapons at the same time. And then the tenth shooter was an officer, uh, was to aim at one of the prisoner's vital organs and deliver the coup de grace, the kill shot. This was Wenceslao's lucky day on March 18, 1915. The Federales took their position and fired, and even the tenth shot was fired. Well, the soldiers assumed he was dead and the job was done, so they thought the soldiers left. But he was still alive. He survived, uh, although in excruciating pain. He waited for the executioners to leave, and then he miraculously crawled away to make his way to safety. The horribly disfigured, and we have his picture, we'll put it on our website. Right. Wenceslao Miguel went on to live a full life and a legendary, um, became legendary thanks to Robert Ripley, who promoted him in his Ripley's Believe It or Not. He appeared in the 1937 radio show and also at the Cleveland, Ohio Auditorium, ODD Auditorium, (laughs) a collection of Ripley exhibits. He was dubbed El Fusilado, the executed one. Wow. I grew up reading all uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not books. Uh, but that's amazing. That really was that uh, he, he was executed. And I think I've heard of other people in various execution situations that did manage to escape by pretending to be dead, but uh, right. then later on crawled away. And, and it sounds and like safe, that may safety. have been what he did. He just lay there, pretend to be dead until they left. Absolutely. Well, we have another amazing story, and uh, this one comes from World War II. And, uh, you know, Leah, about uh, three years ago, I actually. My my wife and uh, some of my family and I visited uh, Auschwitz, which is uh, located in Poland, southwestern Poland. I've been a history teacher, as you know, for 40 years, and uh, I've taught about this place many times and about the Holocaust, but I've never seen it personally myself. And I have to say, I've never been anywhere where you can actually feel sadness hanging in the air like you can there. It's a it's a physical sensation that you can feel. Well, Uh, of, of all places, that would be it. Perhaps on on a future show, I'll tell more just about that that particular experience. But um, the um, the Auschwitz Birkenau complex, like I mentioned, located in southwestern Poland, it was the largest of the Nazi concentration camps. One million three hundred thousand prisoners died there, 
between the years of 1940 and 1945. As far as is known, only 144 prisoners ever managed to escape from this camp. Very, very difficult to escape. That is unreal. Um, it was very heavily fortified, and so only only a very small handful out of that 1.3 million uh, that died and a few more hundred thousand that uh, managed to survive at the end. Uh, only 144 actually escaped from the camp. Here's the account of one of those amazing escapes. On June 20, 1942, the SS guard stationed at the exit to Auschwitz was frightened. In front of him was the car of Rudolf Hoss, the commandant of the infamous concentration camp. Inside were four armed SS men, one of whom, an Untersturmfuhrer, or the second lieutenant, was shouting and swearing at him. Wake up, you bugger, the officer screamed in German. Open up or I'll open you up. Terrified, the guard scrambled to raise the barrier allowing the powerful motor car to pass through and to drive away. Yet, Had he looked closer, the guard would have noticed something strange. The men were sweating and ashen-faced with fear. For far from being Nazis, the men, in fact, were Polish prisoners in stolen uniforms and a misappropriated car who had just made one of the most audacious escapes in the history of Auschwitz. And the architect of the plot, the second lieutenant, was a Boy Scout, to whom the association's motto, Be Prepared, has become a lifeline. His name was uh, Kazimir uh, Pachowski. That's his name. Okay. Uh, he was, um, like I said, born in 1919. And then when he was 19 years old, uh, the uh, Nazis invaded Poland. And the Nazis thought that Boy Scouts would be a source of potential resistance as a symbol of Polish nationalism. So many were rounded up and immediately shot. Wow. Yeah. Boy Scouts were suspected. Others, including Pachowski, were sent to the new concentration camp. He arrived there in June of 1940. He somehow managed to survive the horrible conditions for two years. He worked in the store block where guards' uniforms, forms, and ammunition were stored. He had a friend who worked in the motor pool as a mechanic. Upon learning that his friend was slated to be executed, Pachowski put his plan into action. His position in the block store gave him access to uniforms and ammunition, and his friend in the motor pool managed to make a copy of the key to the commandant's car. One Saturday afternoon, when the activity at the camp was kind of low, these two men, along with three others, slipped out of their striped prison clothes and into the stolen Nazi uniforms. They got into the car and proceeded toward the front gate with the famous Arbeit macht frei sign overhead. That was the sign in front of the uh, all of the Nazi uh, concentration camps that meant work would make you free it was kind of a, a a trick to try to get people to work, hoping that they would earn their freedom somehow. Well, the frightened guard lifted the barrier and he allowed the car to pass. After about half an hour, the plot was discovered, but by then the car was speeding through back forest roads to avoid detection. After a while, the men abandoned the car and continued on foot, eventually splitting up. None of them were recaptured. Pachowski later joined the partisan Polish Home Army, and he spent the rest of the war fighting the Nazis. So he had a very good outcome of his escape. However, his troubles weren't over even as the war ended because the, the Soviets came in from the east and established a communist government in Poland. And Pachowski was arrested two years later because he had been a part of the, the, of the Polish uh, Home Guard. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison uh, for joining the Home Army, and he ended up serving seven years. 
But he uh, was uh, after he was released in 1954, he went to college, became an engineer. He lived to be 98 years old. He died just three years ago in 2017. Uh, throughout much of his life, he uh, often would go back and speak to Boy Scout gatherings and uh, uh, talk to them about his experience and about the importance of always being prepared. What a story. And I, I didn't even know that Boy Scouts existed outside of America. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that was it's a worldwide organization, but uh, you know, they were they were certainly suspicious of them there. Well, our next story is also a war story. Uh, one of the most amazing and inspiring escapes involved, involved rescuing more than 300,000 soldiers from the coast of France in May of 1940. Many of the rescuers were ordinary citizens like Mr. Alfred Harris. To set the background for this story, in 1940 France was expecting an attack from the Germans. Hundreds right. of thousands of French and British troops massed near the German border in northeast France. rather, They had constructed a massive systems, system of barricades along the German border that became known as the, the Maginot Line. Maginot you can line. still go there, there and go. see it today. It's still there. <laughs> However, to their amazement, the Germans did not attack there. Rather, they came through neighboring Belgium, penetrating the dense Ardennes Forest, and pouring into France so rapidly that the French and British were caught off guard. They proceeded at such lightning speed that the Fr British and French were stuck waiting for an attack, which never came. The it was amazing. It was really how quickly they poured through. Nobody thought they could get through that forest, and so they didn't even bother guarding that area of the border because it was so thick, so thick with trees. And then they surprised them. The British expeditionary force decided that their only hope was to try to make it to the coast of France to possibly be rescued by British British ships. That's hard to say, British <laughs> ships. So they made their way to a place called Dunkirk and massed on the beach. The problem was that the water was much too shallow for British naval ships to reach the trapped soldiers. So the call went out nationwide for the owners of small boats to gather and attempt the rescue. You know, Leah, as uh, long as I've been teaching about this, this is one of my, I think, one of the most inspiring uh, things about stories about World War II is how the British citizens themselves risked their own lives to uh, rescue their army off the beach at Dunkirk. And uh, I was really excited when the movie Dunkirk came out, but I was kind of disappointed in the movie because I don't think it really did an adequate job of telling the story adequately. Uh, as as it deserved, um, it was such an uh, act of bravery that so many hundreds, maybe even thousands, of uh, British people took their own small boats. Um, the the British ships were too large to get up close enough that the uh, for the soldiers to get onto the ship, so they needed smaller boats to go right up to the beach, get them off, and bring them out. And so I, I came across a story of uh, one of these uh, men. Um, and his name was Mr. Alfred Harris, as you mentioned. This actually came from a book um, uh, called Dunkirk, uh, by, written by two British officers, Lieutenant Colonel Ewan Butler and Major J.S. Bradford. It was originally published in uh, 1950. The Kindle edition was uh, brought out in 2017 by Sapir Books, and they have granted us permission to use this in our, our podcast, so we thank them. And uh, we'll actually give you a link to the book uh, Absolutely. on our website. Absolutely. Um, the whole book is, is interesting. It's their personal accounts. But um, the um, this particular story, I think, is um, 
uh, very inspiring and uh, very telling of the, of the times that the British people went through um, in 1940. And so why don't you just sit back and relax a little bit, and uh, Leah and I are going to read you the story about Mr. Alfred Harris, Dunkirk hero. On the evening of Sunday, the 26th of May, 1940, Mr. Alfred Harris was drinking a double whiskey in a Twickenham, England pub. It was unusual for Mr. Harris to drink whiskey. Indeed, he was no great frequenter of public houses at any time. Bank clerks, even when they have risen to be chief cashier, are not given to high living. On that evening, however, Harris felt that he must have a drink. The news from France was terrible. It gave a man a horrible, tight feeling in the pit of his stomach. There was nothing, of course, that a retired chief cashier could do about it. That was the maddening thing. People like him could only wait and listen to the wireless and pretend to go about their business as though everything were normal, as though a whole British army, the only army that they had, did not face annihilation. By that strange word of mouth, which operates in moments of great crisis, the news that an attempt would be made to take the army off by sea had already reached the saloon bar. It even uh, had been officially ordered only three hours before, but already people knew about it and were talking about it. I reckon they'll need every boat they can get, somebody said. What about Berkshire Lass, Mr. Harris? There was some laughter at this, for everybody knew about Berkshire Lass. The fruit of many years of painful saving, Harris had bought her at last early in 1939 in time to enjoy one season of blissful cruising on the still reaches of the Thames River before war put an end to such pleasures. She was a 35-foot cabin cruiser, somewhat dubiously powered by a converted Morris car engine, and she was the pride of Mr. <laughs> Harris's heart. Through the long years in the bank, he had dreamed of retirement and a boat of his own. Berkshire Lass had not even been second-hand when he bought her, and there were some in Twickenham who felt that he had been uh, swindled by her former owner. But Harris labored joyfully, painting, caulking, polishing, and tinkering with the old engine until his boat, as he was not afraid to tell anybody who cared to listen to him, was as smart as anything her size on the river. The laughter around the bar irritated Harris. Why not, Berkshire Lass, if it came to that? Probably they would need every boat they could get over there. Mr. Harris finished his whiskey quickly and went home. Mrs. Harris, after whom the boat had been named, for she was from Reading in Berkshire when Mr. Harris had married her, made all the proper feminine objections to the plan. Harris, let alone Berkshire Lass, had never been to sea. He had little idea of navigation, a science which his wife understood was very necessary in the English Channel. <laughs> she made no mention of her real objection to the plan that her husband might get killed. In fact, almost certainly would get killed as far as she could see. Other women's husbands were being killed at that very moment over there, and Mrs. Harris would have felt it a shame to mention that aspect of the problem. In the glory days, when he had bought Berkshire Lass, Harris had made certain pleasant but unnecessary purchases— suitable, as he vaguely felt, for the master of a boat. You could see he was very proud of he this He was boat. very proud of this boat, wasn't he? <laughs> At the bottom of a drawer were two pairs of thick sea boot stockings, greasy and strong-smelling, a southwestern, an oil, which was an oilskin rain hat that is longer in the back than in the front to protect the neck, and a tremendous turtleneck sweater. These had never yet been worn, but now they were brought out and stowed in an old kit bag a relic of Mr. Harris's service in the First World War. More with a view to humoring her husband than because she believed that these precautions would serve any practical purpose, 
Miss Harris made out at his dictation an elaborate shopping list and undertook to buy all of the items which it contained at the international stores on the following morning. Then they both went to bed, but neither slept much that night. On Monday morning, Harris went down to the yard in which Berkshire Lass was in her dry dock for the duration of the war. Three other men, hated rivals in peacetime, were already there tinkering with their boats. Not off to France by any chance, said the most hated of all, a fellow who last summer had made unpleasant remarks about Berkshire Lass. That's right, Harris admitted. Somehow the chap seemed less unpleasant now. Any objection? I gather they'll tell us what to do at Westminster Pier, said another of the men. Can you take your boat out alone? Looks as though we'll need all the space we've got when we get there. I can take her anywhere, Mr. Harris asserted at least, <laughs> asserted stoutly, not without a slight sinking of the heart, and he set himself to examining the engine. They reached Westminster Pier on the morning of May 28th and placed themselves trustingly in the hands of the Royal Navy. A sub-lieutenant won Harris's heart with his approving comment on Berkshire Lass's appearance, although he cast a dubious look at the engine. Think she'll make it, he asked. It's about 55 sea miles from the North Goodwin to Dunkirk. She'll make it, said Harris. In in a strange, ill-assorted flotilla, they made for Ramsgate. Harris nobly oil-skinned and southwestered, though the sea was very still, seated tensely at the little wheel on the port bulkhead of the cabin. Although for any considerable ship the weather was virtually dead calm, Berkshire Lass pitched and bucketed around uh, North Foreland, throwing spray back at her bows dipped to a slight head sea. This, Harris decided, was the life. He watched the sky narrowly for any of these dive bombers, of which one had read so much in the newspapers recently but saw only seagulls wheeling and screaming over the little ships. The dive bombers were to come later. It was at Ramsgate that certain deficiencies in the Berkshire Lass's equipment first made themselves evident. Hitherto they had sailed in convoy, but now it was a matter for charts and for that navigation of which Mrs. Harris had spoken so doubtfully. Moreover, the compass, proudly bought, secondhand, proved to be, if not inaccurate, at least none too trustworthy. Nevertheless, the Naval Control Service, crisp, efficient, and not even contemptuous as Harris had feared, provided charts and routing instructions. Once more, the engine came under critical survey. I hope you can rely on that engine of yours, an officer said to Harris, because if it packs in and you lose contact with your convoy, heaven help you. With that compass, you'd probably fetch up in Calais, which by then was under the control of the Germans, and that would be just too bad. Harris lovingly cleaning a spark plug and speaking with an insurance which he did not really feel promised that the engine would not fail. He loves his little boat, doesn't he? Absolutely. Another trouble was the absence of water tanks. On the Thames River, there had been no call for such a thing since river water, properly boiled, makes an excellent cup of tea. There are riverside pubs aplenty, but now Berkshire Lass was bound for a beach where many thousands of thirsty men awaited deliverance, and accordingly a galvanized tank was with great difficulty rolled aboard and somehow edged into the cabin amidship. At last they sailed on the morning of the 30th of May. Due east to the gull and thence to North Goodwin Light, they sailed, the little ships plugging along, some of them making no more than four or five knots, 
while all about them were large vessels, drifters, which is a large fishing boat, trawlers, odd-looking Dutch coasters, pleasure steamers, and big yachts. Like sheepdogs running around a slow-moving flock, a destroyer or two, and a few motor torpedo boats swept about the convoy. The first attack came as they crossed the Sandette Bake, uh, southeast of the North Goodwins. Ships were coming back from Dunkirk. A large steamer, her decks crowded with troops, was attached, uh, attacked suddenly by a dive bomber swooping from a clear sky. Although the westward-bound steamer was a quarter of a mile away from Berkshire Lass, a bomb destined for her fell so close to Harris's boat that the spray of its explosion came down into the cockpit like rain and ran in little rivulets from the skipper's southwestern as he huddled uh, against the cabin bulkhead. A burst of Bren gunfire and rifle fire from the steamer met the raiders, who replied with their forward machine guns. Then it was all over, and the Ju-87s, the German fighter planes, were climbing steeply. They banked and wheeled eastwardly toward Dunkirk, where the Berkshire last was also bound. So this, Harris thought, was it. Not too much to write home about so far, though, a good deal more than anybody in Twickenham had seen so far of warfare. Still, it would be hotter when they got there, and every turn of Berkshire Lass's little propeller brought them nearer to the beaches. One or two of the boats fell out of, with engine trouble, and Harris could not resist a feeling of malicious, uh, malicious satisfaction <laughs> when he observed that the big cruiser belonging to his rival and neighbor, he who had spoken slightingly of Berkshire Lass in the days of peace, had fallen out of station ahead. She was a comparatively powerful craft and towed two dinghies. With real delight, Harris managed to pull himself alongside, condole with the mortified skipper, and somehow himself grasped the leading dinghy and make it fast to Berkshire Lass. They were coming in now, and there ahead, over the port bow, was a great pall of smoke which seemed to blot out the whole sky. The Germans had bombed the oil refinery at Dunkirk. There was mist, too, and as far as Harris could judge, enemy aircraft were not busy. When Harris came uh, at last into Dunkirk, it was already evening. His two dinghies were bumping along cheerfully in the wake of the Berkshire Lass, but now here and there were abandoned towboats drifting in the light swell. Back at Ramsgate, it had been carefully explained that the difficulty of evacuating the troops from the beaches lay in the fact that the sand shelled away so gently into deep water that only boats of the shallowest draft could approach the shore. Surely, Harris thought, the more of these little boats, the better, and somehow he managed to make fast one of these rowboats to a cleat on Berkshire Lass's stern. Here they were, at last, the men whom Harris had come to save, the men whose fate had given him that nasty-type feeling in his stomach, back there in Twickenham. As Berkshire Lass made in towards the beach at sunset, the men were standing waist-deep in water, singing. Somebody had got a harmonica, and above the chug of his engine, Harris heard the mel melody, the Londonderry air inexpertly played, but at the same time and place, infinitely touching. They, they piled aboard Berkshire Lass, heavy boots playing havoc with the precious paintwork, hobnails gashing the afterdeck, and the white canvas roof of the cabin. They piled into the three boats, so many of them that Harris feared, feared they would overturn the little craft, but an officer who did not himself go aboard saw to it that this did not happen. When Harris put out put about, and made for a fishing boat which lay out to sea. This was the moment against which, Miss, against which Miss Harris's shopping list had been drawn out. Harris had worked it out with care, 
A life of banking teaches a man to be scrupulous where details are concerned. <laughs> canned foods he had decided would be difficult to distribute since how should the cans be opened? So to the sopping men on Berkshire Lass, he handed out dried figs, bread, chocolate, water and paper cups, and cigarettes. They loved him for it. I bet they did. <laughs> that trip out to the fishing boat seemed to take a very long time, and indeed the little cabin cruiser with three loaded boats in tow and herself overladen made slow going. Yet at last the passengers were safely delivered, and Berkshire Lass turned back to the shore. Then the shelling began. A screaming whine, a fountain of water, and much later, the report of a gun. Harris decided that this was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> when he reached the beach again, shells were falling steadily, spattering him with sand. A splinter, humming like a hornet, ripped through the cabin top and buried itself in the seti beneath. Nonetheless, Berkshire Lass took another load out to the fishing boat. The shelling ashore was very heavy now, and the fishing boat's skipper, a real sailor, the sort of sailor whom Harris had always admired and envied, spoke to the captain of the little craft which lay under his edge. "'You won't get anyone, anybody much off now, not while this shelling's on,' he said. "'Better come aboard and have something to eat.' Harris suddenly remembered that he had not eaten, eaten since leaving Ramsgate. He felt very hungry and very proud. The skipper had spoken to him as an equal— as though he were a sailor, too. Well, so he was, after a fashion, now. The stew and coffee tasted wonderful. At 3 a.m., shelling stopped, and away went Berkshire Lass again, until by 5.30 she and her consorts had taken off almost all of the troops, then waiting on the beaches. The air attacks and shelling began again after that, until, as machine-gun bullets zipped into the water around his ship, Harris felt a numbing blow on his left shoulder, and then great, sharp pain. Blood began to trickle down his oil skin. It was then, too, that a sharp wind blowing in from the sea began to toss and batter the little craft and the boats that she was towing. One of them, filled with troops, capsized, and Harris, with only one arm capable of handling the wheel, somehow brought Berkshire Lass round to the men in the water so that their comrades could haul them aboard. When Mr. Harris got back to the fishing boat, he fainted. Pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, that's what they went through and what they uh, put themselves uh, out there uh, in that kind of danger to rescue their soldiers. Yes. Well, it was afternoon when he came to the for when he came to in the forecastle of the fishing boat. Someone had given him an opiate, and his shoulder was bandaged and in a sling. Harris's first words were for the Berkshire lass. She was still on the job, refueled and skippered by a member of the fishing boat's cr uh, boat's crew. Harris went on deck and saw her making for a long pontoon on which troops were crowded. The beaches were empty now, and when Berkshire last returned, Harris insisted on taking over. The pontoon made things easier. One could bring the boat right alongside, almost as though one were coming up to a Thames River landing stage. The enemy were still shelling the beaches. It was at 8 p.m., just after Vice Admiral Dover had warned all ships that the final evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force was expected on the following night that the end came for Alfred Harris and Berkshire Lass. A single dive bomber swooping out of the afterglow of the sunset seemed to bear the little ship a grudge. He attacked twice with machine guns, and at the second attack, Harris was hit again. They picked him up out of the water and took him to a hospital ship. This time he had been hit in the lung 
and in an operating theater as calm and hushed as any in a London hospital, the bullet was taken out. When Harris came to this time, he was told that they were nearing Dover. Wildly, he asked about Berkshire Lass, but nobody knew what had happened to her. Upon arriving back in England, Mr. Harris was taken to hospital to recover from his wounds. Though still bandaged, but on the road to recovery, he greeted Mrs. Harris when she came to the hospital. Though recovering from his wounds, he was still sad over the loss of Berkshire Lass. Mrs. Harris pointed out that, after all, lots of people have lost so much in this war. Why, you were nearly killed. I wouldn't worry so much about the boat if I was you. Harris found it difficult to explain that he wasn't exactly worrying about Berkshire Lass, but he was mourning, as one mourned someone very precious who has died bravely doing her duty and whose place can never be filled. Hundreds of private British citizens like Mr. Harris risked their lives by taking their small boats across the channel to rescue their soldiers who were trapped on the beach at Dunkirk. They ferried them from the beaches to larger ships that were waiting offshore. In all, they saved over 330,000 British soldiers, as well as French and Belgians. And they probably saved their own country in the process, because these soldiers would live to fight again four years later at Normandy. Wow, thank you for, to, is it Sapir Books? Yes. Sapir Books, again, thank you to them for giving us permission for that. When, great story, um, isn't it? It is a great story, and and it makes me remember when I came to your house to ask you to be a host, right? <laughs> this is the story that you read to me. I wanted to hear. You, I wanted you to hear me read. <laughs> and and I have loved the story ever since, and I'm glad to share it with the listeners. So that brings us to the trivia challenge. Again, uh, love just trivia. like yeah, we love <laughs> trivia. We love trivia here, and we love stories of of bravery and and just the underdog. Exactly, that is absolutely what we are about and so okay so the trivia challenge uh just like the all the others like and follow our facebook page at remnants Stew podcast like and share this episode post great escapes and then put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post and the first person to do that will be the winner and will be mentioned in in a future episode of remnants stew Oh, so, what, what great acclaim you will have. <laughs> so what is our what is our trivia well, question? Well, here's today's so. trivia question. We just talked about the uh, rescue at uh, Dunkirk. What was the code name given by Winston Churchill for the Dunkirk rescue? The code name. And, and I had no idea what that was. <laughs> Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. Audio is produced by Philip Sinkfeld, who does and who does what he can to make us sound good. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram. If you have an idea you would like to hear us cover in a future episode, you can email suggestions to us at staycurious at remnantstew.com. Now, before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Maybe take the time to give us a review on iTunes. We love to see your reviews. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, personal trainer, and bus driver. And until the next time, remember, you can make a difference in the world if you would just choose to be kind. And And always always stay stay curious. curious.